Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Hey, guys. Uh, This is a little different. If you can hear me, wave at me. Okay, awesome. Um, As people are coming on... um, We're going to basically do what we normally do. I'm just going to do it for my office, but I want to introduce you to my friend who is going to be the host of my Zoom so that I don't have to multitask. Um, (laughs) She can multitask and her name is Kay Dodd and she is one of the best Christian comedians out there right now. So what better person to have as a host than an amazing Christian comedian? So I want her to say hi to you guys, and uh, so you just know who she is. So hit it, Kay. Okay, when she says the best comedian out there, what she means is sitting in a farmhouse in the Northwest Georgia mountains, unemployed. Um, I feel like I am like the Enoch of comedy right now. I was with comedy, I walked with comedy, and then I was no more. And um, I watched my career go out the window in about two hours time a few weeks ago. So I am, and now, you know, here we're trapped in the house. And um, I was telling them before you guys, for you ladies came on that I'm now in a size E for elastic. Um, because I've been eating my way through the COVID timeframe, the pandemic. So I'm just Glad to be here with you ladies. I can't hear any of your responses. I hope some of you at least chuckled. Um, but um, I wrote Shannon a check to say all those nice things about me. Um, but anyway, so this is how we're going to run it. So I miss you guys. I'm a three on the Enneagram, which means I do not like isolation. I like to see people's responses. I like to get hugs. I like feedback, which I'm getting none of right now. And um, I'm pretty much sequestered alone. So I just want you to know I've missed you a ton. And so, but we're going to make this work. And I'm just going to actually casually teach you just like I would if you were sitting right here in my office with me. Without further ado, I want to start off like we do on Tuesday morning with my friend, Brian, who we call Professor Proverb. And so he always opens up our Tuesday morning with about 10 minutes Uh, teaching us a proverb that relates to what we're studying. And if you want to get prepared for where we're going, we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, We're actually going to start looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, so you can be prepared. Um, So Brian, Professor Proverb, you ready? I'm ready. Hey, and I did not give you 20 minutes. I gave you 10 minutes. All right. (laughs) Yeah, you'll get your money's worth. Okay. Um, We're up in Canada right now, so it's about 36 degrees. And uh, so I'm ready for some warm up action here. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Anyways, so let me jump right into this. In today's study, Shannon is going to be covering one of the most sordid stories in, I think, the whole Bible. And uh, it's about David, who's a tragic hero. And we think of him, he's, of course, God's anointed king. He's the man after God's own heart. And so we can't help but wonder, how in the world can he throw caution to the wind and crash and burn so dramatically with such a tremendous fallout as we're going to see? 
And I can't help but wonder, did he not consider the consequences when he walked on that palace rooftop that one night? Now, certainly this story Shannon's going to cover isn't included in the Bible to entertain us as some sort of scriptural soap opera, although it does, I guess, fit the uh, formula for the daily diet that TV spews out, not that I would know. Uh, the Apostle Paul, though, he used episodes from Israel's history, not for entertainment value, not to get a few more likes on his Facebook page, but he writes this. He says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our, our hearts on evil things as they did back then. And so what Paul is really saying here is he said, he's being honest, he says, stuff happened back then. It was bad stuff, reprehensible stuff. But rather than be appalled by these people as if we're so far above stooping to their level, let us learn and be on our guard. Paul would later say a few verses later, he says, let the one who thinks they are standing so strongly take heed lest they also fall. So there are numerous Proverbs that are pertinent to the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But I asked Shannon if it'd be okay to give you a quick recap of what's going on in chapters 11 and 12. So here's the one minute, set your clocks. Here we go. One minute recap. David is on the palace rooftop. One evening, he spots Bathsheba bathing down in her courtyard, inflamed with desire. He has her brought to her. Meanwhile, her husband, Uriah, who's one of David's own mighty men, is on the battlefield. So we have adultery, we have the resultant pregnancy, and then we have the going to brutal lengths to cover up by ordering Uriah home, immediately hoping that Uriah will do what a man does and go home with his wife and later assume that the, the uh, baby that his wife is pregnant with is his. But alas, Uriah's stubborn refusal to leave the palace results in David's twisted decision to ensure that Uriah would be killed in battle. And it works. David would later marry Bathsheba, and the baby that is conceived in her, conceived in the adultery, would die. And the prophet Nathan's additional proclamation of long-term consequences as judgment looms quite large in chapter 12. Now, I'm going to read a few Proverbs to you, so if you have your Bibles, it's Proverbs chapter 6. And as I read these Proverbs to you, you're going to see how eerily apropos they are to David. And I can't help but wonder, if Solomon had a hand in writing chapter 6, did he have his father and mother in mind as he's writing these verses? So I'm going to start at chapter 6, verses 27 and then 29. It says this, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Then to verse 29, it says, So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. And so what do we see happening? You play with fire and you're going to get burned. Even if you think you can get away with it, nobody ever gets away with it. Uh, an author and a podcaster that I've been listening to a fair bit, Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian clinical psychologist. He wrote a book that uh, became quite popular called 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. His rule number eight is tell the truth or at least don't lie. And his point is that every time anybody lies, you never get away with it because you pollute something in your soul when you lie, even if nobody detects it. You wind up hiding a part of yourself, and so you lack something vital in you. Hence, you lack vitality. You lack the vitality that God wants you to live in. So he says this, basically, you don't get away with anything in life for a price is exacted on your soul. 
Now, I've listened to a number of Peterson's podcasts, and so often as he applies his training in psychology and tells stories of the dysfunction of his clients, he is spot on with his advice and his principles because I find that they are often parallel with biblical wisdom principles. Now, I don't know if he fully realizes it, but I do believe that all truth is God's truth. So, again, you don't get away with anything because something is compromised in your soul and you will be less than the person you were created to be. When we hear the biblical phrase, be sure your sin will find you out, well, what do we tend to think? We think, well, it means eventually you're going to get caught by somebody else and you're going to pay the price. Now, that may be true at times, but what is true in Peterson's opinion is this, is that you will always pay for your foolish choices by diminishing your potential and compromising your character. And how David paid. Now, let's jump down a few verses in chapter 6 to verses 32 and 33. And it says, But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. Now, we notice, of course, this is addressed to males, and that was the ancient wisdom we see in the Bible. It was advice from a father to a son. But we know that in Proverbs, what we should do is we should flip the genders when, when necessary, and uh, read these as if they're addressed to us. So I don't know how many men are in your uh, pool listening here right now, Shannon. But uh, since we're addressing women, let's, let's make sure we change the, uh, the, the pronouns here. Anyways, their shame will never be wiped away. You know about the Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel. We know about the havoc that is wreaked on other people through bad choices. And tragically, the shame of foolish choices washes over loved ones as trust is broken. It is absolutely unbelievable how complicated a universe of consequences is created by a simple declaration, let there be pleasure. But it is a creation of chaos out of order, not the other way around. How much gossip was in the palace around Jerusalem at that time? Word gets out. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts, it says in uh, Proverbs 18, verse 8. And I wonder, what did David's servants, what did the palace staff know about what was going on between David and Bathsheba? What did the two think when they went to fetch Bathsheba to bring him up to, bring her up to David's room? How many knew that she was in the palace? Who else found out that she was pregnant? Who else would have put two and two together when David had Uriah brought home from the battlefront in a desperate uh, measure to absolve himself of any guilt. And in the years to come, fast forward to Solomon's day, I wonder what sort of mean-spirited humiliation and teasing Solomon had to endure from uh, his half-brothers, his older half-brothers, who really knew the score. The shame of David's own son, Absalom, forcing him, David, to flee for his life and robbing his own father's dignity in the, uh, rubbing his own father's dignity in the mud by doing what? by having his way with the remainder of David's harem on that very palace rooftop in front of all of Israel, a fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 12. We are told that in an honor-based society, which was the ancient Near East that David lived in, that some things were worse than death, and it was public humiliation. Dishonor would be bad enough for a common citizen, but imagine dishonor and shame for a king. You see, David did not get away easy. 
And while God forgives, a principle of Proverbs is he doesn't stop the shame or the consequences that others heap on a person through unforgiveness, through dredging up the past over and over again, and of course, through malicious gossip. People did not forget, even though God would. And it continued to haunt David, Bathsheba, and Solomon all of their lives. It's a good thing David didn't know that this story would feature prominently in the scriptures, that's for sure. As I've mentioned before in these sessions, every proverb is a mirror. And so what is our takeaway this evening as we looked at a few of these proverbs? Well, let's go back to Paul. These things that we read about in 2 Samuel happened as a warning to us. And we must guard our hearts because only arrogance allows a person to be slack enough to think, I could never fail. I would never do that. You know the song that has the lyrics, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to do what? To leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, you may never consider committing spirit, uh, adultery, but there is a, a, a concept in Scripture called spiritual adultery, and Israel was guilty of it. It's two-timing God. It's trying to serve two masters, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I sat under a, a, a minister who's well-known in the Phoenix area, and he admitted that for years, ministry was his mistress. You see, many things can plead or uh, seduce us with our allegiance when they shouldn't be, our allegiance shouldn't be there. So let me conclude with this proverb, chapter 423. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And so consider the best ways that you can guard your heart. Be aware of the triggers in your life that make it easy or tempt you to drop your guard. 425 of Proverbs will say this, let your eyes look straight ahead Fix your gaze directly before you. And I believe that theme is picked up in Hebrews chapter 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I'm done. Hey, Brian, what was the proverb right before that? Hebrews 12? Uh, 425 and 423 were the... 423 is guard your heart. And 425 is let your eyes look straight ahead. I love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What an amazing uh, overview of where we're headed. And uh, I don't think anyone does it better. Um, but now we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to do what we do, girls. We're going to go through it a verse at a time and break it down. And um, so here we go. It says, It happened in the spring of the year at a time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Um, we did not go through chapter 10 really together, but in chapter 10, you have Joab and the forces going out against the Ammonites. And at the time, the Ammonites had gotten reinforcements um, from Syria. And so Joab couldn't quite defeat the Ammonites. He had to um, call in reinforcements. David came in as the king and bottom line, took care of business. And now, once again, it says that it is a time when the king should be out at war at spring. They didn't go out in the winter because it was cold, it was rainy, it wasn't the time to go out to battle. That was not the time that you would want to go out on a campaign and be encamped 
Um, and so now it is spring. It's the time when they would go out to war. Um, Joab and his army of the mighty men were preserved against the Syrians and the Ammonites. Um, but now they would go out to battle. And so through custom and through experience, David should have gone with them. So bottom line, David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. David remained in Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, but it's not a good thing. And the bottom line is we're going to find out that David was idle. He wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing. He had an amazing amount of time on his hands, and we're going to see what happened. It says in verse 2, that it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Uh, he arose from his bed. He walked on the roof. That word literally means uh, or gives suggests that he was pacing back and forth. Bottom line, what was he doing? couldn't sleep. And so he's pacing back and forth on the roof. He couldn't seem to clear his mind. Um, he wasn't tired. Why? I don't know. How about you right now? Do you feel a little idle? Are you having trouble sleeping? Sometimes we can't sleep because we're not tired from anything. David should have been out at war and he knows it and his mind knows it and he can't shut off his mind. He's not where he needs to be. And maybe he's not tired from anything. Everyone else is doing everything for David and his mind is idle. And it says that while he was out there, he saw a woman bathing. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly researched this story. And to be honest, I think this story, and Brian's smiling if you can see him, uh, this story drives me crazy because it is a very difficult story because we aren't given a lot of detail about certain things and you will the more you research it the more you're going to understand that you have people on both sides of the coin when it comes to what was Bathsheba's involvement in this situation and so I thought what I would do is kind of just let you know um, what people think I'm going to give you both sides of the coin um, some believe that she had very little choice in the matter um, that she was pretty innocent in this situation. They will tell you uh, that bottom line, Bathsheba was not on the roof. David was on the roof. It's interesting how many people, when you ask, they have this picture that Bathsheba was out uh, bathing on her roof. Scripture doesn't say that Bathsheba was on the roof. It says that David was on the roof. And so that means that David, being in a higher position, could look down. If you've been in that part of Jerusalem and you've seen where David's palace would have been, you would see it's up on a raised hill and he could look down into the courtyards of the homes beneath him. And so she could very well have been in her own courtyard, somewhat concealed from the homes around her, but not the homes that were above her. Um, some commentators will say that it doesn't say that she was naked, that she could have been bathing um, in various ways, she could have shown her feet, she could have shown a leg, but not necessarily naked. Um, when it talks about the fact of when David finally sends for her, they will say, basically, what choice did she have? When the king sends for you, you go. You do not question it. 
And they will then say, you can't deny a king. And so when she was called in, when the king requested to lay with her, that she would have had no power to refuse and that she would have been fearful. And so many things you read actually um, even say that they believe she was assaulted or that she was raped. So that's one side of the scenario. And you can read a lot about that if you research the story. The other side has a few other uh, ideas um, because it has questions like this. How close was the palace? And if the palace was that close, would she not have known that the king often came out on the roof? And if he could see her, was she then not aware of him? And then you'd have the idea of the bathing. We're gonna look at that a little bit. Um, some think that it was just bathing. Others believe because of something in parentheses we're gonna see in just a little bit that it was actually um, a ritualistic washing after her period. If that was the case, she would have been naked. Um, and if that was the case, that uh, purification would have also insinuated that she was free now uh, for sexual activity. Um, you also have the idea that there would have been women who would have seduced high-powered neighbors for security, for status, for wealth. Um, you have the idea of considering that the men were away at war. They could have died. She might have had a need for security. Um, and just the whole idea of Bathsheba in general, the fact that she would become a powerful queen um, when you think about the fact that David did promise Bathsheba that Solomon would be a king, you wonder in some ways, did Bathsheba have a hand in that? Um, how much influence did she have over the king? Um, what a powerful woman she was. Um, you could go literally, you could study it for days and you would have one side convince you one day one way and on another day you might be convinced of the opposite. Uh, one is going to convince you that David stripped her of her power and dignity and that then to add insult to injury the writer stripped her, stripped her of her right to tell her own story. On the other side you may say well what if the point is that David took full responsibility for everything and just left her out of it. Seduction or no seduction, David was responsible. And if you think about the fact that she was the queen of Israel and this was written afterwards, what was the point of dragging her reputation through the mud? You could think on this and ponder on this for days. You really could. And I actually said uh, to one of my friends today, maybe the point is that the story isn't about Bathsheba. The story is about David. Well, he questioned me on that, and then I got to thinking about it. That's not true either, is it? The story's about both. And uh, we don't have great detail about Bathsheba, but there is one thing I do know, that she is one of the women mentioned in the line of Christ. She is important. And so either way, I think we can learn something. If she was an innocent woman in all of this, and she was taken advantage of, and she was assaulted, by being in the line of Christ, what did he do? He honored her. He saw her. He recognized her. If, in fact, she was a part of the seduction, I think his grace restored her. 
And so I do think that the story is about both David and Bathsheba, although we aren't given all of the details. It goes on to say um, that he saw the woman. So we talked about the woman bathing, but let's talk about him seeing her. Um, his sin was not in seeing her. I mean, there's not a man alive that's going to see a, a beautiful woman bathing in a courtyard that's not going to see it. That's like asking a man who's walking through the mall and he sees something walk by him a little scandalous that he's not going to notice. For goodness sake, we notice. So, of course, they notice. It's not the first look, right? That's not the problem. The problem is that he allowed his eyes to tarry there. He didn't allow his eyes to bounce off. He allowed um, these alluring images to draw him in to uh, basically lust. Um, one commentator said, Christian men especially must learn to never let their eyes or their mind rest on alluring images except for what belongs to them in marriage. Our eyes must bounce off alluring images that come into sight. Um, and that is true. I also think, though, that as women, and I'm not accusing Bathsheba, I'm just making a statement because I don't know what truly happened. But I remember a time when I had a friend and um, she brought up the subject of modesty and she had daughters and she was making the statement that she felt like modesty was an issue of the heart, that her daughters had great hearts and that they loved Jesus and that they just wanted to dress according to the style. And I remember us having that conversation and I questioned just a little bit because I had a son and I remember suggesting to her that I didn't think modesty was just a question of the heart. And I wasn't questioning the heart of her daughters, but that I believed that modesty was also an issue of the eye. And as the mom of a son, I remember saying, I just wish sometimes that when women were dressed, they would keep, um, they would realize sometimes what we do to men. And I think we are very aware of our bodies. I don't think we're stupid. Um, and so I do believe sometimes uh, that our immodesty can definitely cause men to stumble. And I do think we need to watch that. Um, to be honest, I don't know how young men go to school today and concentrate uh, with all that their eyes can tarry on. So that's just a little FYI. Um, but the danger of the gateway of the eye, doesn't it remind you of Genesis? And when the woman saw the fruit, that it was beautiful, that it was good to eat, and that it was profitable and gaining wisdom, it says she took it and then she ate. You see that progression? The gateway of the eye, she saw it. She thought about it. She acted upon it. She took it. And then she ate it. Um, the lust of the eye, seeing something you want, the lust of the flesh, knowing that it would gratify the body, and the pride of life, making your own decision of what is right and wrong, what is profitable for gaining wisdom. Um, I can't help but wonder, um, can lust be satisfied? If you think about it, David had many wives, but it seems like his lust was never satisfied. And uh, look what it started because that principle was also illustrated and exaggerated in the life of Solomon, David's son. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
I mean, my word, did he even know him? Was it just a one night special and that was it? I mean, how do you keep up with that many women? Um, and to have unlimited and it's still never enough. How much is enough? One more? I don't know. Um, it then says that David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? First off, I, I want you to notice that. I believe David had poor accountability. Um, to be honest, he had great power, and I think he was surrounded by yes men. And more than likely, the men that had the backbone to say no to him or to give him a strong rebuke were probably where they should have been, and that is out fighting in a war. And David should have been out there with them, but he wasn't. And so he calls his servants, and he begins to inquire about her, which means that he has allowed sight to become thought. He sat there, he watched her, and he thought about how she could gratify his flesh. And then that thought became a word because he actually began speaking of it. It wasn't just a thought. He actually talked about it. He inquired of her and he sent people to inquire. Right away, they come back with information that should have been a red flag and a warning. Uh, by the way, do you, do you think David was lonely? I thought about that today just a little bit because it was in a, remember in a chapter nine, do you remember when he says, is there anyone left in the family of Saul that I can bless? Like when he finally reached that position of peace and power, do you think he was missing Jonathan? Deep connection, lust was not satisfying, and he had a loneliness in his heart. I don't know, but here he is in a place he shouldn't be. He should be out to war. He's by himself. He can't sleep. He's uneasy. He sees Bathsheba, and uh, through the gateway of the eye, he is tempted, and he allows the thought to remain, and before you know it, he speaks of it, and he sends his yes-men um, to inquire of her. When they come back, they come back with some serious red flags and warnings, and they tell him, listen, this is the daughter of Eliam, and uh, you need to know who he is. He is one of David's fighting men, one of the 30, one of his top 30 fighting men, her father. Not to mention that she had a grandfather, Ahithophel, and he was one of David's councilmen. So here's another thing. Bathsheba came from a powerful family. Um, and not only that, her husband Uriah was also one of David's top 30 fighting men. So these were men in his inner circle. These were men who were out fighting and leading for him. And he finds out, listen, not only does she come from a powerful family, but she is married. She's off limits. She belongs to someone else. That is the way that these servants were trying to tell their king, uh, yeah, this is no. This is a big fat no. And so they deliver this. David began to think, what does he know about Uriah? He's not home. He's off at war. And so now, as he has thought about this whole picture of lust in his mind, not only has he thought about it, but now he realizes it's what? It's possible. And uh, by the way, I don't want us to think for one second that men 
are the only one who deal with the I or deal with lust. I think women deal with it just as much. I joke all the time with you guys that I think Hallmark shows are like porn for women because uh, most of the time we are not, um, we aren't tempted a whole lot by the eye. We're more tempted to, towards the emotional, the romantic. Um, and bottom line, that is sometimes what those kinds of romantic movies produce in us, a fantasy. And we can sit and allow that fantasy to circle around in our mind. And uh, when someone finally comes around, when we feel isolated and lonely and not appreciated and tempted, that they can begin to also speak our language. And I believe we can think on those things and end up in the same situation with David. But David committed adultery in his heart on the roof. But now he knows that the opportunity to commit adultery in practice is available. Um, Here's something to remember. The distance from head to hand is much shorter than you think. The distance from head to hand is much shorter than you think. It seems like, oh, there's no problem if I just fantasize about something. If I just spend time thinking there, nobody knows my thoughts. Well, first off, we know that God knows our thoughts. There is nothing hidden from him. Everything is laid bare. But the problem is our thoughts become our what? Our actions. David should have received the news of the woman's identity as a warning, but instead he goes for it. In verse four, it says, then David sent messengers and she came to him. He took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed for her, from her impurity. She returned to, and she returned to her house. So you have the sight that became a thought, a thought that became a word, a word that became an action. So he sent them. It says that he took her and she came to him. Um, one commentary says this. So bottom line, David ignored every warning. But one commentary says this. It says, in the expression, he took her and she came to him. There is no intimation whatever that David brought Bathsheba into his palace through craft or violence, but rather... She came at his request without any hesitation and offered no resistance to his desires. Consequently, Bathsheba is not to be regarded as free from blame. Another commentary, Clark says, we hear nothing of her reluctance and there is no evidence that she was taken by force. But then there are those who would say, could there be another reason that she thought she was being summoned? Could it have been she thought there was word about her husband who was away at battle? Some would question, do you say no to the request of a king? Would David have gone so far as forcing the daughter and wife of a powerful man to sleep with him? I don't know. I don't think David was quite so comfortable in his position that he thought he would never have resistance. I personally can't imagine that if she would have put up any um, fight that he would have pushed in this scenario, but it says that he lay with her. David knew this was wrong, yet he did it. Can I ask you, have you ever known something is wrong, but you did it anyway? Some people are like, what was he thinking? Really, of all people, Bathsheba, she's married to one of your fighting men. Her father is one of your fighting men. Her grandfather 
is one of your councilmen. Are you serious? You're gonna pick Bathsheba? Oh, the web we weave. What in the world are you thinking? What's the deal though? What's the answer to that? He wasn't thinking, or he wasn't thinking with his noggin, right? And if we act like that we've never been in that position, I think we're selling ourselves short. Have you ever been in a position where you weren't thinking that you were in a situation of passion? See, the problem is I think we underestimate passion. Um, I remember a story of when I uh, first told Hillary about sex, she was 10 years old. And I remember thinking, wow, 10 years old, that's pretty young. But in this day and age, we have to get to young people early because the message is gonna come to them early. And I would suggest you get to them early before their body is telling them things that they wanna do so that you can have a conversation without all the embarrassment. But at the time we kicked the boys out of the house and Hillary and I had a whole day of it. It was pretty, pretty awesome to be quite honest. We went shopping that whole day and I was like, you know what, if you gotta learn about sex, you might as well go shopping all day as a 10 year old. So we did that and then we um, decided we were gonna go to dinner and I took my pencil, my piece of paper and I shared with her everything about her body, her everything about reproduction. I talked to her about sex. Uh, we'll never forget it. She had some of the funniest questions in the world. And um, then after that, we went to a late movie and then we came home. She actually said it was one of the best nights of her life, um, which I appreciate. But I remember that day telling her, Hillary, you know everything. I have told you everything. You have all the information you need. So when you get to middle school and you start hearing about sex and you don't understand, don't feel, don't feel intimidated. Don't feel dumb. You know everything. You just may not know the vocabulary that they're using. And so I remember that she came, I told her, when that happens, come home and tell me what you're hearing and I will tell you what it is. Simple as that. And so I remember one day she came home and um, I was cooking spaghetti and Zach at the time was 16. He was doing his homework at the table and she was asking me questions of what words were. And, and I was doing all that. Thank goodness I'm a woman because we can multitask and handle all that. I think I was also helping Zach with his homework. So I just remember at one point, Zachary looking at, or Hillary looking at Zach, who was 16, and she goes, Zachary, do you want to have sex? And Zachary looked at Hillary, he looked up, he was so annoyed, and he looked up at Hillary and he goes, Hillary, I'm a 16-year-old boy. Of course I want to have sex. And I remember her looking at him and saying, I just cannot imagine ever wanting to do that. And then she walks upstairs and Zach and I sat there and we were laughing our heads off. The point was, right, Hillary was learning about something that she had no experience with. She did not understand yet what passion is like. And I think sometimes when we talk to our kids and especially in the purity movement, when we ask them to make commitments so early, uh, sometimes they make a commitment because they don't understand what passion truly is. They don't understand the fight. And so sometimes I worry about that in the sense that sometimes I think young people make a commitment and they will put on a purity ring and they're representing this commitment that they will stay pure. 
But then the problem is then they come up against what passion truly is. And uh, sometimes I feel like that, especially the ones that fall to it, when they fall, they have such shame and such embarrassment that now they're walking around with the scarlet letter that they put on their own finger. And they're not willing to share that with anyone and they're not gonna take it off because they feel such shame. And in some ways they walk around feeling like a chewed up piece of bubble gum. And I think we need to be really good about the love and grace we give when we talk about what it is like going up against passion. Passion is quite the force. And so when we look at this, especially the situation of David, we're gonna see David is a passionate guy. For goodness sake, he wrote the Psalms. Um, and, but what made him so great also became one of his greatest traps. Um, and when we think, how could David do such a thing? What was he thinking when he made this decision? <laughs> he wasn't thinking. And so he gave way to passion. It said here, there, if you'll see in parentheses right there in your scripture, it says that she was cleansed from her impurity. It's really interesting um, because some believe that that is what she was doing in the courtyard, that she was washing. She was going through the ceremonial washing of when a woman finishes her period um, seven days after that first day, she cleanses from that impurity so that she can be declared clean and that that is what she was doing. I don't know about that, but I do know this, that I believe, or at least I think I do, I believe that was put there because we realize that at this point, there's no way she can be pregnant from her husband. Because if she had purified for her, from her uncleanliness, that means that she has had a period and there is no question that if she gets pregnant at this point, her husband is off at war, that this pregnancy would be David's. And um, I believe that's what it means. There is a ceremonial cleansing after any kind of discharge. So it's interesting that it talks about this after uh, she lay with David, but I think it makes more sense in context that it is telling us bottom line that uh, there's no way she could be pregnant from her husband, that this baby will be um, David's. Um, so it then says this, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Wow. Can you imagine? Both of them, I believe, were terrified. This was a problem they didn't see coming. And uh, to be honest, it meant that their adultery would be found out. And it also meant that lives were at stake. Because in the Old Testament, um, the punishment for adultery was death. It's not like that today. Maybe death of reputation. Um, maybe the death of a family, the death of a marriage, but we don't deal with actual death usually because of adultery. But this was the situation. Um, that's quite the panic. And I can imagine how she felt. I mean, he was the king. She is a woman who was pregnant. And so it's going to be out there. People are going to know. And her life is at risk. Um, I asked the question and I don't know why I ask questions that I don't have the answers to, but 
maybe you appreciate that about me because it makes me inquisitive. I do not know. But I just wonder, uh, in some ways, why didn't David just let it play out? I mean, at the end of the day, whose life is really at risk? He's the king. I started thinking how many people would truly go up as a witness against a king. I don't know, but maybe more than you think. I'm not sure David was so set in his confidence of his empire because it took him quite a while to get everybody underneath him. Um, I think there were always people probably still conspiring um, to divide the kingdom. And so maybe he wasn't so confident, but it makes me wonder, right? She went to him and she said, basically, I'm pregnant. Now, why is she giving him that word? Something needs to be done. We're in danger. What are we going to do? Um, her message involved an appeal to him. Uh, take the necessary steps. Help us out. What are we going to do? Um, by the way, when you think about how um, secure David might have been, I want you to realize that later on, her grandfather ended up being on Absalom's side. So listen, there are all kinds of undercurrents going on. David may not have had the support you think. In verse 6, it says David attempts to cover his sins. So um, David's pretty good at cover-ups. Do you remember that? It's been a while since we've been together, but do you remember uh, when Joab killed Abner in the street? Do you remember what David did? He comes back, he's livid. He's like, guys, we're gonna mourn publicly like you have never seen. Uh, this is not good. We're gonna have a national funeral and you guys are gonna tear your clothes and we're gonna have ash and I'm gonna give a eulogy to be all eulogies. We're gonna convince the world of a narrative that somehow this war hero uh, died in the street like any normal man, and we're going to cover up. David was quite the, um, the actor, and so he begins to cover it up. It says, then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. I wonder if there was a little wine in that. I don't know. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, David sends for Uriah. So instead of at this moment, here she is pregnant. It's about to come out. He does not repent. He does not stop and think, what have I done and make it right? He does what we all do. He tries to cover it up and he sends for Uriah. He tries to hide it. So he draws Uriah back home. I cannot imagine what Uriah is thinking when he gets called 
from war to come to David. And David basically says, hey, how's it going? How's the war going? What's going on? It's like they're having small talk. He was trying to act normal. Uriah had to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Have you ever had like awkward silence that you're trying to fill with conversation? Like you're just talking and you can just like cut the tension with a knife. You're trying to figure out what's going on. Why is this so tense? And keep in mind, uh, this is one of the top 30 fighting men. Any messenger could have been sent to David to give him information about the war, but yet David sends for one of the best fighters he has to come back and small talk. How's it going? Uh, tell me about Joab. Uh, what's going on? And you know he's thinking, what in the world is happening here? Why is he asking me this? Why did he bring me home? And the whole time, this man wants to go back with his brothers to fight. It says, so Uriah departed from the king's house, and he sent with him food, a gift of food. I wonder if there was wine. And Uriah does not go home. He does not sleep with his wife. Instead, he sleeps at the door of the king's house with all the servants. Uh, Brian talked about gossip earlier. I wonder what they talked about as he's laying there, not going home to his wife. And it says that his answer, and then the king asks him, what, what in the world are you doing? Why would you not go home and be with your wife? Almost like, like manly talk, almost like, um, dude, seriously? Like what, what is wrong with you? Any man I know would go home and be with his wife. He's, he's kind of spurring him on uh, to do that. And then bam, look at what Uriah says back. You want to talk about a punch in your gut. He says this, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, David, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Are you stinking kidding me? Is David hearing this? He's like, um, no. He's like, my brothers, the ark of the Lord is in a tent. My brothers are out on the field in the middle of battle in a tent. And you think that I'm going to go home? and be in the comfort of my home? Would that not hit David in the gut? Where should David be? He should be out there in a tent in the middle of the field with them, but he's not. And now he is trying to tempt or instigate this man into going home and having the luxury of home and being with his wife. And this man refuses to do so. And one of the reasons he gives is David. Because as you live, my loyalty to you is way more than that. As your soul lives, I would never do that to you. Oh, my word. So here David is in the comfort of his palace, not at war, not in a tent. And not only he's trying to get this man to go home and sleep with his wife, knowing full well that who has? Him. I cannot imagine 
how fast his heart is racing, the anxiety that he has to have in this conversation. And I cannot imagine, I just wonder if Uriah kind of knows what he's saying. I don't know. It depends on what he's heard. Is there any gossip? Is he trying to figure out why I've been brought home? Why I'm here having small talk? Why is he wanting me to go home so bad? Why is he pushing me to go be with my wife? And I also find it interesting because if you go back, I don't know if you remember, do you remember when David went and to Nob when he was running from Saul and he was telling, and the priest gave him the, the bread off the table of showbread. Do you remember that? Just nod to me if you do. I can't stand that I can't see y'all. I can see some of you. Um, do you remember, if you go back to that, he basically said, listen, my men can go ahead and eat this bread because they have refrained, they have stayed pure. And so there was, it seems, a preparation for soldiers going to war under David to where they would have a time of celibacy or purity preparing for battle. And so now you have this man coming back in the middle of battle and David is encouraging him to go home. Now, I don't know how long the journey was back. Maybe he had time to get right on the way back, but I just find it interesting that here David is doing everything he can to tempt this man into going to sleep with his own wife and out of loyalty to his brothers who are fighting in that battle and out of loyalty to the king, he refuses to do so. And the whole time David knows, oh my word, here I am remaining in my palace, not being where I should be. And I have actually slept with his wife. I can't imagine. So then it goes on to say in verse 12, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. Why is he making him stay another day? Well, keep in mind, he's been in the middle of battle. He's thinking battle. He has left his friends who are in battle. That's where his mind is. Maybe David thinks it takes a little while to let all of that fall off and to settle back home. And so he says, okay, the first temptation didn't work. Look, he's being the tempter, for goodness sake. The first temptation didn't work. So let me give him some time to let the battlefield kind of fall off of him and let me try something else. Look what he does. Wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. I wish I could have been around all the conversations of all of that day. I would love to know what he's thinking, what people are talking about, the question of why am I here? What was the purpose of me returning? I would love to know if Bathsheba knew he was there. I would love to know if she even knows any of this is going on. She doesn't seem to come find her husband. She doesn't seem to have any information about her husband. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Wow. So David has him wait. He is allowing the intensity of the battle to fall off. And when all else fails, do what? Get him drunk. David, who had been drunk with passion, 
fell into the arms of Bathsheba. So he's thinking maybe if I can get Uriah drunk, he can uh, forget about the battle and he will go home and sleep with his wife. I can't help but wonder is if the dinner was going, how much, um, how much banter do you think went on between the men? Um, as they're drinking and having a good time, I wonder, do you think he called in any entertainment? I don't know. Uh, was there any dancing and entertainment and maybe uh, sexual innuendo and any kind of banter to kind of help Uriah along to encourage him to go and to be with his wife? I think David was, uh, listen, he was pulling out all the stops. He, he was figuring out all he could do to get Uriah to go home. Why? Because if Uriah could go home and sleep with his wife, then, hey, the timetable's not always perfect for pregnancy. Then there would be that opportunity to say, no, remember, I called him home. He slept with his wife. This is his child. Everything would be fine. At this point, David doesn't seem to have any desire to marry Bathsheba. He doesn't really have any desire uh, to father the child. He's willing to give the child up in order to cover up his reputation as well. And so he is in full-on panic mode. He did not, but Uriah did not go down to his house. Um, I just cannot help but wonder what he knew. Uh, a commentator, Trap. I know I'm out of time, but Trap says this, some commentators believe that Uriah suspected some infidelity in Bathsheba and avoided her out of jealousy. It's like he smelt that something was going on, right? Uh, Brian, isn't there a proverb about jealousy? There are quite a few on jealousy, yeah. Are it, there any that would work right there? I just wonder. Um, it talks about... Uh, a jealous well, man accepting a bride. What was... Oh, yeah, yeah, that uh, at the end of chapter six there, that uh, the jealous, the husband will not accept any compensation, no matter how great the bribe. Yeah. And, and that's what I think David was trying to do, is trying to bribe Uriah into going back. That's why I think Uriah knew something was fishy. And yeah. I, think, I think that it was uh, his statement to David. I mean, he couldn't reprimand him because he's his commander in chief. But by his, his refusal to go home, he was, it was like he was sending a message to David. I know, I know what's going on. So that's my, that's my theory. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't believe this man became a great fighting man because he was dumb. No, absolutely and not. I don't truly believe that uh, what happened in the palace stayed secret. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just wonder, yeah, what he knew. But yeah. then that just goes to show you, I mean, look at him he still followed along and went back to war and did his duty. That's kind of amazing, actually. Um, so obviously we're not gonna get through the story of David and Bathsheba, <clears throat> and I'm not gonna be able to uh, wrap this up. I don't think we really care because we go through the chapter verse at a time and talk about it, but I think there can be some takeaways already. I don't know about you. Um, at the bottom, I thought about some things and, you know, I think we have to be careful with um, being idle, <laughs> which is hilarious uh. right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's very hard. I think uh, 
you know, you talked about fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You could talk about Colossians 3 that says, you know, keep your heart and eyes fixed on the things above. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be idle, but it's very hard right now not to be idle. And I think, you know, we are probably watching a lot of television and, and doing all kinds of other stuff. We feel disconnect. We don't feel purpose. I think idleness is very dangerous. We weren't created to be idle. Um, even in the garden, we had purpose. We had work to do um, because we were never to be idle. Um, we hear uh, things like, you know, idle mind is the devil's playground. Um, and so I think it is, it is hard at this time. Um, we need to have good stuff coming in and still be fixed. How can we be a part of kingdom work, even in this scenario, which is really, really hard. I will tell you, I've been in a funk this last week because I'm not great with technology. I'm not, I feel like I'm completely out of my box. I don't get feedback. um, And it's not bad. It's just different. And we have to adjust and figure out how can we keep doing Um, what we're called to do. And so I think idleness is scary. I think we have to guard our eyes as well. That's another thing. We have to watch the gateway of the eye because we see it, we ponder it, we think about it, we begin to speak it, and we act upon it. Um, And um, we got to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I think also that when we we see a story like this, we need to be, we need to realize that uh, we're not above it. There is not one person that is above falling into a temptation like this. And we're going to see that this is the same David who wrote, oh, I delight in your laws, O Lord. <laughs> this is the same David that spoke all of those beautiful Psalms, but yet look, he falls to passion. And so I think we have to be careful of that. I think we need to be quick to repent because we know that it is our, our bent to cover up, to protect. Um, and so, but as we go, we're going to look, um, how this story played out. Um, and you know what guys, what do you have to do right now? Why don't you study this chapter? Start investigating some of this stuff. Look through this chapter. Read this stuff. I'm going to introduce stuff to you over the next week that I have never even seen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.